0: Proctor with some announcements before we get into this week's episode. Lambda World is back, taking place in Cadiz, Spain on October 26th and 27th. Early bird tickets are sold out, but student tickets and regular price tickets are still available. For more information, visit www.lambda.world. Code Mesh will be taking place the 8th and 9th of November. The Code Mesh 2017 schedule is now live. With 40 speakers, including 4 keynotes, there is a talk at Code Mesh 2017 for everyone. Find out what you should be developing for the future, network with top professionals, and get inspired. Speakers from Facebook, Microsoft, Starbucks, CERN, Harvard, Cambridge University, and the Imperial College of London to name just a few. Hurry, early bird is ending soon. For more details and to register, visit www.codemesh.io. Closure Sync is a new conference by the creator of Purely TV, Eric Normand. Set in New Orleans on February 15th and 16th of 2018, ClosureSync is all about the craft, business, and culture of closure. Go to closuresync.com—that's closure s y n c dot com—to sign up. Lambda Day's 2018 will be taking place February 22nd and 23rd in Krakow, Poland. 2018 Lambda Day's call for papers is now open. Submit your proposal for a change to join Jose Valim, Philine Hermans, Philip Wadler, Heather Miller, and others on their stage in February. The call for talks is open until October 30th, and a research track is available as well. The very last early bird tickets are on sale. Get them while you still can. And if you don't manage to catch the very early bird tickets, don't worry. Early bird ticket sales start on the 1st of October and will last for a month. For more information, to submit your talk proposal and your register, visit www.lambadays.org. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I'll be happy to announce them. Also, some of you have mentioned that you would like to share your support for Functional Geekery. In that vein, Functional Geekery now has a Patreon page. If that is how you would like to show your support, you can find out more at www.patreon.com slash fngeekery, and a giant virtual hug goes out to all those who are already supporting the podcast. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on iTunes, or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And If there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I'll put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host Proctor, and this week with us we have Stian via Mullerson. Stian, would you mind telling everyone a little
1: about yourself? Yeah, my name is Stian, as Proctor mentioned. I'm from Oslo, Norway where I uh, work as a web developer for a consultant firm. And I mainly help the clients out with large front-ends and complex JavaScript applications and stuff like that. But on my free time, I uh, explore uh, strange languages.
0: And you got put on my radar with Codemesh coming up. And there you're talking about concatenative languages. I've heard some about those, and it's, so it sounded interesting. And I've heard some people recommend those as... Semi functional languages. So, I figured it'd be interesting to get that as a uh, comparative of what we normally think as functional with some of this other stuff. But let's start with a little bit about you and your background. How did you first get into software and software development and programming to begin with?
1: Yeah, okay, that's an interesting story. Uh, I went to school uh, to New York University to study computer science. I didn't really choose computer science because I was particularly interested in programming. It was recommended because it was a good way to get a job. I really wanted to go to school to study archaeology. But archaeology doesn't really offer that much job opportunities, at least not like in Norway. So I, I went for computers because, hey, I play a lot of computer games, so I can do this computer thing. And I was completely floored the first year when we studied Java. I didn't get that at all. It was so alien to me. I had done some some like scripting stuff before. But the whole introduction of object oriented programming and stuff like that was like instances what what is an instance like old stuff. That was so strange, so I had a really hard time with the first couple of years, and uh, it didn't really click until uh, later in the studies when we got to an algorithms class where we implemented algorithms in Python. That's when I started to like understand kind of what programming actually could be <laughs> uh, after a couple of more. Years in university, I started to specialize in artificial intelligence and uh, figured that was a little little bit more fun to be more uh, like apply the programming uh, better. And when I finished university, I got a job as a consultant because that was what you did in in Norway. Most of the people that graduate from university with computer science, they go into consultant role. I'm not sure why that is because it's it's kind of weird that so many people are going to be consultants, but uh, I guess because of how Norway works, I guess. <laughs> it becomes like that. But anyways, when I was finished university, I kind of had resigned myself to the fact that I was going to do Java stuff for the rest of my career. And I really didn't see programming as fun. It was more like a, a means to an end, some way to instruct machines to do what you wanted. So programming was very... Uh, it wasn't a utility for me. It wasn't really... That much of a craft or a passion. But when I started working for a consultant firm in Trondheim, where I was uh, studying, my first project was a really large front end code base for a company that did. They sell access to cabins and uh, fishing rivers and hunting and stuff like that. And on that team, I got a lot of responsibility that was kind of uncommon as a freshie. But they let me learn my own pace and they gave me a responsibility for the front end. And that really helped me like discover what, how much fun programming could be. Like uh, working with user interfaces and uh, working on the web was really satisfying. And that uh, kind of triggered me to really discover that I really liked programming for programming sake, not just because it let me instruct computers to do things. And uh, it kind of got on from there. Back in two thousand and twelve, when I graduated, the front end world was kind of in like a tumultuous time. I guess it was kind of finding its uh, finding its footing after realizing that hey, we are actually doing pretty complex things in the front end There's a lot of stuff floating around a lot of people entering the front end world from other languages and like a lot of ways to look at problem solving so that if you were interested in in the front of that back then, you could get exposed to like a lot of ways to program. Like, uh, you had the uh, the closure people with a closure script, and you had uh, the beginnings of Elm and the beginnings of things like uh, your script and stuff like that back then. And uh, also like a lot of frameworks and stuff. So uh, naturally, being a a curious person, I started looking into languages and uh, and how I could learn to be a better programmer. So uh, that's how kind of how I stumbled upon. Things like closure, uh, and from there, I kind of got more into functional programming, and then even more into other kinds of programming uh, languages like Prolog and stuff like that. Because it was really fun to discover and discover functional programming to like contrast it with what I was doing at that time, which is more like imperative, object-oriented stuff. And you see, like, it uh, open a whole new world for you when you see, like, wow, I, this is so different. Yeah, in a way of like constructing your solutions, you see the problem in a whole whole new way when you can look at it from like functional programming instead of like a set of instructions to a computer. And from there on, I just dug deeper and deeper and deeper into the world of programming languages and stuff. And at some point, I came across a blog post by Michael Fogus, which mentioned something called a Perlis language. He defined that as like based on a quote from Alan Perlis that said, if a programming language doesn't change the way you look at programming, it's not worth knowing. So he listed out a long list of these program and program languages, which uh, totally changed his view on programming. And so I, okay, that sounds interesting. So I I went down the list and there were some interesting languages there, like Eiffel, the contract-based language. And there was uh, this language called Joy which was the first time I encountered uh, the native languages. And uh, around the time when I discovered this blog post, it was, it was about this time of year, actually. And in December, there is this uh, company in Norway that does this Christmas thing where they have for every day uh, leading up to Christmas Eve, they do this little programming contest. So I, I decided to take one weird language and try and solve all the problems with that language. The first year I did Prologue, and the second year I did uh, did Joy. And Joy was just like, wow, this is so different and so much fun. And that's how I got started with concatenative languages.
0: And if you start in software because you heard that's where the jobs are, you want to make a living, you can do that with software. It wasn't necessarily about the Joy and had previous exposure. What was it about the web development and building those websites for that cabin company and tourist company, I guess, if I understood right, that said, this is it. I can make a living on it to, wow, this is fun. Let me go see what's out there, discovering all the things like closure script and Elm and at least putting them on the radar and say, maybe these are worth learning to actually going and doing deeper that says, well, I'm going to go check out focus's list of perilous languages. What was that first spark that took it from? I can get by. I do this. I'm okay at it. So I can make a living at it too.
1: Wow, I enjoy this. I think it was a bit about how the world of front back then was kind of lawless. Programming for me was very, you had to follow specific rules and it was really rigid. It, uh, that's, what, like, that's how it was taught to me in the university. Like they kind of sucked the joy out of the creative part of programming. It was more about you have to use this thing to fulfill this criteria and this requirement and so on. And when I entered the front-end world, it was a lot of rules there as well, but uh, you have the, the creative aspect of you're working with something visual, and I've always enjoyed the visual parts. When I entered university doing programming, I initially thought I was going to go into games programming, but I didn't really have any aptitude for 3D programming, so that kind of fell through. But the whole thing that programming is actually about creativity kind of appealed to me, and I didn't really think about it in, that, in those terms until I started working on front-end things especially working with alongside designers and user experience people, it really opened my eyes to how much creative thinking that goes into forming a good UI. And that's when I started to think that maybe programming isn't all about the specific rules and dogma and more about what you can create. As long as you really know what kind of limitations you're working with, you can pretty much create whatever you want. And I think it was... uh, from one of the early JS around that time, where there was a guy called Angus Kroll that had a talk called Breaking All the Rules, which kind of highlighted some of the more weird parts of JavaScript. My introduction to JavaScript was, uh, along with so many others, the JavaScript Good Parts book. And uh, I didn't really think about it when I read it back then, but it's really spitting language into use these parts, don't use these parts without really explaining too much about why. And this talk by Angus Kroll, it, it went over those forbidden parts and explained why they were there and what they could be used for. And that was like really eye opening to look at the language in that way instead of looking at it like there's this good part and this forbidden part. Like that's kind of destructive thinking, I think. It was really fun to watch a lot of those videos from the early JS comps where there people were doing crazy things with JavaScript. Like so there was one guy who implemented a browser inside the browser it was really weird and that kind of opened my eyes to the, the idea that programming doesn't need to be so strict and rule-based you can do these really weird things with it and uh, yeah that's kind of how I shifted my view of programming from something static to something more dynamic and something creative instead of just do this to achieve this kind of thinking.
0: And then if you're getting this spark, you're seeing that this is something you're starting to enjoy because you're getting the creative design feedback aspect of it, realizing that there is creativity here. I have a million ways I could solve this problem. What made you excited to go out and start looking at a bunch of other languages versus going the opposite route and say, well, there's the JavaScript stuff. I'm breaking all the rules now. And I start to understand when you do and when you don't break the rules what was the thing that said, I'm actually a language geek and I'm going to go check out ClojureScript and some of these others or Clojure and eventually even go on down Focus's list. But what was that first thing that put on, well, it's like I want to check out other languages and see what they do versus try and be the expert or stay the expert in a
1: language or two? Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting question. I, I'm, I don't think it's uh, necessarily either or. I think for me it was at least I spent a lot of time Uh, On JavaScript, and I still do. And maybe because I'm still kind of fresh, I've only been in the industry for five years. So I still got a lot of energy, a lot of excitement for this. So I spent a lot of time reading and exploring. So I could do both. But what triggered me to go down the route of more languages, I guess, kind of a need to understand programming, like in general, uh, in the same way that I understood JavaScript at that point. I wanted to understand how we arrived at this point in history like we have all these languages why are they there if we know so much things about programming why do we need more languages why are there different languages and i wanted to understand the the reasoning behind these languages and and why someone felt the need to make these languages in the first place and it's kind of like about taking a a more bird's eye view of programming where you look more at the more general parts of programming not just the specifics of working with that particular problem or that particular platform, I guess. So uh, back then I was looking at many different frameworks because like JavaScript, you need a framework, blah, blah, so and that kind, of, that kind of discussion. And for me, frameworks and languages aren't really that much much different. Like a framework has even more specific reason for existing than a language does. But uh, if you take a framework to its ultimate conclusion, you pretty much end up with a language anyways. So, I just felt like exploring languages was the natural evolution of exploring frameworks, I guess. And this need to understand the programming in them is more basic, concept basic form. Like, when I discovered functional programming in JavaScript, it opened my eyes to the whole idea of working more with data instead of just working with objects and instances of data. And that kind of opened my eyes to the idea of programming as a more abstract thing up until then programming was really concrete you were just looking at how do i instruct the computer to do what i wanted to do but then it became more like i have these data things how can i transform this data into some other piece of data and more of the as i discovered later like to the mathematical view of programming with the category theory and stuff like that so yeah that was kind of what set me on the path of discovering more languages i guess
0: and I have fallen in line with you personally of, I think i become a better expert in whatever languages I know by exploring the other languages, but it's always yeah, interesting definitely. to see how other people come to that conclusion, or if they do come to that conclusion, versus just say, I'm going to be an expert in this language, which is not a bad thing. It's just to see how people make that decision to
1: go one way
0: versus another, and what drives that.
1: Yeah, definitely. And also... uh I've always found it a little bit weird how some programmers kind of define themselves through the language they use. I'm a JavaScript programmer, I'm a Ruby programmer, I'm a Python programmer. I've always found that a little bit strange. So thinking in learning multiple languages and being able to pull from a a large collection of problem-solving techniques when I program is really helpful. So definitely uh, learning more languages really helps helps you become a better programmer. And it also helps you adapt to new environments better. Being a programmer by profession, you have to be able to learn quickly and adapt to new techniques and new frameworks and new platforms and stuff like that. So uh, definitely be having more programming languages under your belt really, really helps.
0: And so you mentioned a bunch of languages you touched. Can you elaborate a little bit at the high level of which languages started that journey and how you eventually progressed and started to pull deeper into the prologue and <laughs> the concatenate of languages? Because you mentioned closure, you mentioned a couple, number of others. So what was that yeah. evolution like? And at a high level, what did you find as the transition as you continued going from language to language in your learning?
1: Yeah. Back in university, I did uh, mostly Java and uh, a lot of Python. And uh, I didn't really uh, uh, understand that uh, there were other ways to do programming than to just uh, think of it all as like I'm instructing the computer to add these numbers together and stuff like that. Until I I stumbled upon this coding called functions as values in JavaScript. And from there, Clojure was kind of the first language I looked at uh, as more like a hobbyist. Mainly because there were a lot of really prolific closure people popping up around the front end of things in and around 2012, 2013. Like yeah, that was when the like a closure script was starting to make a mark. And so uh looking at Clojure was felt kinda of natural. And also because Clojure was is a Lisp, it kind of opened my my eyes to the idea of language families. I could uh, learn about Clojure by studying lisp and racket and scheme so i went out and got this book called the little schemer i guess a lot of programmers have heard about that book and uh, it was really fun it was really the right book at the right time for me because it kind of builds up your understanding of working with functions from the really basic concepts and also the way it was written like in this question answer kind of style it really piqued my interest in how the uh, the medium of conveying knowledge really impacts how we understand things. And uh, after looking at Clojure and seeing this connection to the other LISPs that came before, I started to look at what other language families are there. And um, around that time, there was another colleague of mine that was really into this thing called F-Sharp. And he was like all, all about the types and stuff like that. So I think I was like, hmm, maybe I should look at that. And so uh, from F-Sharp, I finally got, got to standard ML. And uh, there's this Coursera course that's called Programming Languages, I think, uh, by uh, Dan Grossman. And in that course, there's a, some videos. And I watched those videos, and he was going through how uh, type inference in, uh, in standard ML works. And that kind of opened my eyes to like, another kind of way to look at programming. Like you can, you can use the types to define your domain, and the operations on that domain kind of falls out of the types you write. That was also very interesting. Like yeah, It also opened a whole new world of thinking. And also around that time, late 2013, I was lucky enough to be put on a project that had the large F-sharp code days. So I got to practice as well as I learned. So that was, that was fun. And so uh, at that time, I had tried it out a kind of different languages. I had a course back in university that was called uh, Logic and Reasoning Systems that used Prolog, but uh, back then I didn't. I really didn't appreciate prologue for what it was. It was mostly like, it was so strange and and so alien back then that I just pretty much just copied all my exercises from someone else. So uh, I just could pass the course. But I uh, kind of revisited it with uh, fresh eyes and the whole understanding that programming languages doesn't need to be like the way I thought it, they had to be. So uh, after learning about that uh, closure and F sharp and, uh, LISPs and standard ML and types and stuff, I went back and looked at Prolog and I started to really appreciate the approach to problem solving you can take with a language that works the way Prolog works. You just define your problem and you get like the language search the problem space and find a solution for you. That was just like, wow, you can tailor a language to your specific problem domain and you can get some superpowers out of it. <laughs> That was kind of exciting, looking at something in that way instead of just a normal way of looking at a program language in a runtime. With Prolog, having a, a very specific way of running your programs, it really affects the way you would approach a solution to a problem. You have to formulate your problem in a way that Prolog would understand. You couldn't just like write it out instruction by instruction like you would normally do in the program language. So that really opened my eyes to the whole thing that programming languages really affect the way you think, and I think that's around the time when I found that Perlis language list by Focus. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I saw that uh, there was an uh, another language family that was even stranger than Prolog, I just like I, I have to try this. I have to explore the, what this is and, and why did someone make this? Why did they feel the need to have this kind of language exist in the world? So. Yeah, that's how I got started, with Joy and uh, the whole of getting into languages thing.
0: And Prologue, if you've got the Lisp stuff, seems like you yep. would get a little bit of exposure to it. I've read a couple of Lisp books, and Prologue seems to be one of those examples that they kind of say, hey, we can kind of build our own Prologue, a very simple version of it, but relatively easily, at least enough to cover in a chapter kind of thing. Yeah. you got Mini and Micro and all this stuff with Lisp, so... Some of that, but when you got to concatenative languages, was that the first time you had exposure to them? Yeah. And I guess the second question is about concatenative languages. I've heard of Forth and Factor, and those have been put on my radar. And those are stack-based as well? Is concatenative just the same as stack-based, or...? Is there a difference? Because when I think stack-based, I think back to at least over here in the US was the old HP Hewlett-Packard <laughs> calculators where you'd type a number in, you'd hit enter, you'd type another number in, you'd hit enter, and then you'd hit like times. And then it'd pop it off and doing just the simple programs that say, here's a stack-based calculator. Mm-hmm. Was there any exposure to that kind of concept at a high level? And what is is concatenative and stack-based one and the same? Or are there some differences between those two?
1: Yeah, so um, we touched uh, on like different notations back in university. You had like a prefix and infix and postfix notation. And uh, concatenative languages, usually, yeah, they always use postfix notation. The strangest notations, uh, you can say, because uh, in programming, you often use the prefix when you invoke a function and stuff. In mathematics, you, of course, use the infix because it's the way you do but that was kind of the only exposure I had to the whole concept of concatenative style programming. And the difference between stack-based and concatenative languages, most stack-based languages are concatenative, but not all concatenative languages have to be stack-based, if you if you understand yeah. what I mean. Because you can have a concatenative language that doesn't uh, rely on the stack at all. But having the stack there just makes most operations easier. You could look at a stack-based program in the way that you have a lot of functions that operate on the same argument. So the same way you would like wrap like a, you do like a super higher order function where you just call the function with the result of the function, result of the function, and just all the way down. And since all the functions take the same argument and produce the same output, you can pretty much like take a nested function and like spread it out. Basically concative languages, you can look at it as just a series of functions applied to the same argument and produce the same output. So in most concatenative languages, that argument and that output is the stack because it makes it easier to shuffle around arguments in the stack. You have these special operations that shuffle the stack around, and they are just easier to implement in a stack than in something else. So uh, that's kind of the connection between concatenative languages and stack-based languages. I think the word concatenative language didn't really get used until Joy. I guess I can like introduce Joy at this point, I guess, because I've said the name a couple of times, but I haven't explained what it is. It's a purely functional programming language that was made by a guy called Manfred Von Thun in, uh, I think it was around late 90s, early 2000s, I guess. And uh, Joy is kind of special because it, in addition to being a concatenative language and Zach based it also has the concept of quoted programs. You get a lot of the same capabilities as you would in a, in a Lisp. You can do, actually do something that looks like a higher-order function by passing a quotation into another function, and you can execute a quotation inside a function. What was the second part of the question again?
0: I think that you kind of covered it. It was kind of one just giant big ball of, <laughs> of the exposure... Any previous exposure that kind of set the foundation however primitive, which you said, some of that algorithm stuff in class, and then the difference between concatenative and stack-based. And it sounds like stack is just the specialized implementation, and it may be kind of like you can do tail call optimization where you don't have to put something else on the stack, but you rewrite it in some of these functional languages. But the concept of a stack-based language is there, whether or not it uses the stack under the covers is the differentiation then. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's the point. And so as you go on, you start digging into joy. What was? that experience, if you had this little bit of, well, we're going to write a basic post-fix notation processor just at the very simple level in your university studies, when you're getting into join, you're starting to dig around in this and you actually go on and take that advent calendar of programming challenges or whatever <laughs> that was that you said yeah. kind of runs in December, what was that experience like as you started to dig in? You mentioned early on that you thought it was really fun and interesting to solve these problems in a different way. Did it click? Was it a little frustrating? What was that? <laughs> what was that first emotion oh,
1: uh, as you were getting into uh, these languages? Uh, the first emotion was like, "Wow, this is really weird." And uh, the second emotion, I guess, was frustration because when you're working in a, with these computational languages, which are really limiting in the, what you can do, you don't have variables, and you don't have all these all these tools that you normally use. So it really forces you to think about the problem you're trying to solve before you write a solution for it. And you have to kind of deconstruct the problem and take it down to its really really basic parts. And doing that in a concrete language was it taught me a lot of a, a lot when it came comes to like how to look at problems. As the Advent calendar went on, I got better at it. I could see when I was doing something that wasn't really good or um, it was really cumbersome to do in a, in a concatative language. But when I took a step back and looked at the problem again and kind of formulated the problem in different terms and then re-implemented the solution in the language, it became like super simple. And I guess many people have maybe seen concatative languages where you have these really strange one-liner solutions that you look at it like in this, and you think, like, this isn't programming, it's just... Gibberish. <laughs> and when I was working through that Adam calendar, I kind of got to that point in the end. I was typing out these like strange one liners to solve some kind of iteration problem. And that's when it kind of clicked. I really understood why someone would spend time on these languages. Like, why did someone take the time to actually implement this kind of language? And uh, yeah. So uh, that was really, uh, really fun and educational.
0: It seems like this weird balance between some of these functional languages because you have to be careful of your side effects because yeah. you still have to have expressions everywhere. So you lean towards the functional language side there where everything's an expression because you've got to evaluate something and then put it back on the conceptual stack. And you mentioned that Joy had a focus on purity and did quota programs so you could do the equivalent of higher order functions. Yep. You take a step back, though... And at least from my little experience with doing these basic stack-based languages for things like addition and very primitive stuff, as you said, you don't have variables. You have to figure out the order of the things that are going to happen and put them down in a range. So where's that balance between some of the declarativeness, which I'm assuming you can get if you can do these weird, crazy one-liners as well, (laughs) versus the imperativeness that says, well, these things kind of sort of have to go in a certain order. Because I've got to build up my stack appropriately, and I can't just kind of put things and do things concurrency at the super, super, super fine grain level, like in a method or in a function, where it's like, okay, I can do A, I can calculate A, I can calculate B... But it doesn't matter if I do B or A first, as long as I do them before C, because C needs both B and A. So where does that thinking come in? And how does the thinking get changed in the manner of as as one starts to progress in these stack-based languages or concatenative languages?
1: That's kind of a part of the whole uh, deconstructing the problem process. Because you have this limitation that you can't just do things and reference them from, like you do do a calculation and store it in a variable and reference it back when you need it. You have to actually order your problem your solution in order to avoid having to shuffle the stack a crazy amount of time. That's definitely a part of like, the whole teasing the problem apart from the solution kind of thing. You can almost like solve the problem by hand first and then implement it in <laughs> in the language afterwards. Especially with these kind of algorithmic problems, it's harder to just program your way to a solution without thinking it through first. That kind of leads to the whole coquetative languages. Aren't really suited for general programming and general problem solving, especially in, in like a UI kind of programming, because you have all this asynchronous stuff and the kind of programs you write today are really complex things. <laughs> Not that they always have to be, but they usually are. I think the thing about concatenative languages is that the philosophy of programming in those languages kind of forces you to spend less time in the language itself and spend more time thinking about your problem to be able to simplify your problem to the point where you can actually implement it in the language. So uh, a lot of the really high-level programming languages, they allow you to take shortcuts and to, I guess, kind of be a little bit sloppy in your solution you choose for a problem whereas concatative languages, they don't allow you to do that. <laughs> you have to actually think about your problem before you implement it. I guess this is a kind of a good segue into a cool programming book that's called Thinking Fourth, which is kind of like a collection of interviews with fourth programmers from the 70s and early 80s. This book was released in 84, I think. And it contains like the whole problem-solving philosophy of People using of using forth language to solve industry problems, and that book is really really fun to read because it's unusual to find a book that focuses more on the whole philosophy of problem solving rather than how you would use the language to solve the problem instead. And uh, that kind of opened my eyes to that the fact that maybe good to take your time and think about your problem before you would write a solution for it. So. Uh, I guess that's kind of where the concatenative languages shine, I guess. Like when you're able to to deconstruct your problem into specialized solutions for all the subparts of the problem, and you can like, string them together in different ways.
0: And on that topic, I want to make sure we cover it, which is the fourth and concatenative way of thinking and some of those benefits of, you mentioned, focusing on destructuring the problem. But I want to dig into that a little deeper. But before we get there, Is there anything else that we need to just bring up and cover that we don't think we've done a good job or anything else you've thought of in the meantime, as we've been discussing this, that you want to go back and revisit? Again, I still want to dig in and push down this line a little bit more, but I want to give a chance to recap if there's anything that's come to mind as we've been talking.
1: I guess we can talk about how creative programming comes into all this, because uh, that's kind of the angle I take when I introduce these kind of languages in my talks know. I don't know if yeah, that was where you were going uh, or if you can take that before.
0: So we'll talk about the mindset change. Yep. And then we can talk about how that mindset change fits in with the creative programming. So I guess let's start yep. with the mindset change of, you mentioned deconstructing, but you also said the Pushing Forth book?
1: Uh, thinking Forth.
0: Thinking Forth. The Thinking Forth book had the idea of... Here's deeper ways it changes your thinking. What were some of those high levels of how concatenative languages change your thinking? And then we'll get into how that applies creatively as well.
1: I'm not sure if the book itself kind of like uh, looks at it as uh, how the thinking changes. More like uh, this is how we think when we use when you're programming in forth. It was released back in the 80s. And uh, I haven't read that many texts and books from that time that are so in line with how we're doing programming today, a huge part of the Thinking Fourth book is uh, dedicated to this concept called factoring, which is uh, how uh, Fourth programmers apply, uh, like they iteratively develop their programs using these kind of rules that would pretty much be the same kind of rules we apply to programs today when we're doing refactoring. I guess like factoring, refactoring, I think the similarity in words is not uh, coincidental. <laughs> so. Uh, Yeah, this concept of factoring where as you write your program and you see that some part of your program becomes kind of too complex or you see that, okay, here we have a repeating pattern or this part of the program isn't really clear or you have an API for a module that has grown too large. All of these kind of decision points can be solved with something they call factoring, which means like. Teasing the code apart and defining new functions for things and stuff like that, and pretty much like the whole book like builds up to this point where, in fourth, the functions are basically called words, and the sign philosophy of the guy who uh, made the first fourth, John more. he wanted the language to kind of read like English text, so that's why he chose the name word for the central composition uh, the central abstraction unit in this language, and. Uh, when you are working on a piece of fourth code, you, you can start with just typing out everything. And you have this huge mess of weird incantations and uh, things that sounds like uh, you're singing a song, like dup 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 doop, <laughs> And uh, that's kind of where you start teasing your program apart as well, where you can take a piece of code and you just give it a name. And then you can use that name different places in the code. And uh, that's kind of where... Concatenative languages really lets you do this easily because defining a new word in your language is really easy. You just take a string of words and uh, you give that string of words a name and when you want to use that name, you put the name of the collection of words instead. Constructing your programs just becomes a matter of concatenating words together and that's kind of where they got the name concatenative languages. Uh, I guess this is kind of hard to explain without actually having a piece of code to point to the downside of auditorium medium i guess having the ability to just pick up a set of words that appears in in the middle of a program name it and put the name back in the place where the words used to be this process becomes really natural and it it fits really well with the whole factoring thing and uh, that was kind of the understanding that led me to believe that uh, These kind of languages are really well suited for creative programming. Does any of that make sense?
0: (laughs) That makes sense on my end. And I can kind of see where the concatenative makes sense, where you're making one giant word that's a combination of a bunch of other
1: words. Yeah. It's kind of how you would like to do it in a natural language, I guess. You have this kind of, uh, especially like in functional programming, you have these words that are really dense, like the word monad, for instance. If you know what a monad is, using the word is time-saving and clarifying because it has a very specific meaning. And when you use that in the description of something, like you say, this is a monad, it comes with a whole lot of context and a whole lot of uh, meaning for someone that knows the word. And the same kind of thinking you do in a language where you have a way to name your concepts that makes sense in the problem domain that you're working. So you can pretty much end up with like a description of your problem that really fits how you would describe the kind of problem using English version, for instance. But at least that's what the author of Thinking Forth tries to convey.
0: And as you said, the factoring and tying it with refactoring, I see a lot of the parallels there as well of just taking a method or a function, depending on if you're pure or not and what languages you're programming in, is here's the same chunk of code it's a bunch of lines of code now, but it represents the same concept. Let's extract this out, give it a name of a function and or a method, and we'll just invoke this. Even going
1: back to procedural,
0: that ties in as well a lot, it seems.
1: Yeah, and also like Forth is kind of old language. I think the first version that Chuck Moore wrote was back in the 60s. It has some old roots. <laughs> so back then, like the main competition for Forth would be like uh, Algol and uh, COBOL and... Yeah, those those old school languages. So, like, I kind of understand why he wanted a language like this instead. <laughs> it makes sense, and also it's kind of interesting to see how much ahead of their time the fourth programmers were. Reading this book and thinking, like, this is back in the early '80s. This is the kind of stuff that we didn't really talk that much about until uh, the '90s, and we had uh, programmed in C plus plus and Java and uh, and maybe even um, small talk for a long time, and you started thinking, thinking about uh, how we can grow and evolve our code bases. I think the Refactoring book it came out in '99, I think, and this Thinking Fourth book came out in '84. So, yeah, it was really interesting to to read that with uh, the whole historical context in mind. So, if you really want to get a good grip on the whole concretive languages and and why they have a place in the world. I guess like reading the Thinking Fourth book is recommended.
0: And I want to touch a little bit more on the creativity aspect. But you did mention that some of this is hard to see in audio format. Yeah. And we'll <laughs> get to you giving a presentation upcoming at Codemesh. And they're good about videos. So at least do a quick reference of if this interests people and they want to see something visual. I'm sure you'll have some visual stuff in your presentation oh, yeah. there because <laughs> you're talking about this. But fair. a little bit more about the creative and elaborate there a little bit more before we wrap up. The creative is the process of factoring out this long string, or is there something a little bit more that makes this creative side of the concatenative languages appeal to you?
1: So um, I really like being creative with programming instead of being functional with it. So, like exploring so many different languages and things, um, it's hard to find proper problems to apply the program language to. And so uh, I kind of started to, Instead of trying to write applications and algorithms in the languages, I started just like, can I make something creative and expressive with this instead? Something that's not necessarily useful, just a way to have fun and write the programming language at the same time. So uh, that's kind of where I come from. I really enjoy making kind of like visual demos and stuff like that with the language instead of writing an application, because writing applications means having to think about all the, the strange uh, corn cases and stuff like that to be like, really useful. So kind of programming for the sake of instead of for the sake of making something that works, I guess. That's kind of how I approach languages as well. Because when you are doing creative programming, you ha- have a kind of process. It usually starts with writing something really small, something uh, like this space, a line on the screen or something like that. And then you start to tweak the parameters. Like you can adjust the length and the the size and the color of the the line. And then kind of maybe you uh, even uh, randomize something or you interpolate something over time so you can have a, a line that changes color, like fluxes between red and blue or something like that. And then you kind of like start doing this more times like you have so one line, you have maybe 500 lines and they all change their color individually or they're placed in a way that they maybe they don't overlap, when they create these strange patterns. And uh, this process of creative programming kind of fits really well with the factoring approach and the way that you would continuously evolve a code base in cognitive language. When you're solving a specific problem using cognitive language, you have to think about the problem really hard before you start implementing the solution. Otherwise, you're going to get stuck. But with creative programming, you don't necessarily have a solution. You just want to evolve your program over time. So there's no right or wrong. There's just programming. (laughs) And that's why I take this kind of approach to talking about concatenative languages, because the creative process and the factoring process, they kind of uh, line up really nicely. And also because in a concatenative language, reordering the program is kind of simple because there's no ceremony connected to how you invoke functions, or how you reference parameters. You can uh, reverse the string and get a totally new kind of behavior. And that fits really well also with the whole creative programming thing. If you want to like uh, remix your visual demo, you can just reorder your program and you get a whole new demo. <laughs> and that whole thing really appeals to me. Um, it's a really fun way to to learn something new I really enjoy taking that creative programming approach to learning new things because it keeps it fun while also being educational, especially like if you are writing or exploring something new and different for the sake of implementing a specific solution to something. It's easy to get frustrated because you're not able to reach that solution in a manner that you're comfortable with, or you're not able to reach a solution at all. And you kind of eliminate that whole problem with your go doing creative programming instead. You don't have a solution, so whatever you discover as you're programming, it becomes a solution. (laughs) So uh, it helps you keep the motivation up while you're kind of struggling, learning something new and uh, banging your head against the wall. So that's kind of why I like this kind of viewpoint, like the creative programming viewpoint of a new language.
0: And then you mentioned Thinking Forth. Yeah. You've got your own AIT Lang, which you're making your own concatenative language. Do you recommend people go off and write their own concatenative languages? Are there good concatenative languages to start with? If people are curious and want to find out more, aside from Thinking Forth, what do you recommend? Good languages to start with that already exist? Go write your own. How do you recommend people when you go advocate learning this to change your way of thinking? What does that look like?
1: Writing your own cognitive language is uh, it's really fun. And also because the evaluation rules of a cognitive language are really simple. You're just reading the program from from left to right and consuming like one token at a time and doing something with uh, that token. Because everything in a cognitive language is essentially the same kind of construct. So even numbers are words, so you can interpret them in the same way you would interpret another function or something. So Michael Fogus has actually written a thing called redevelop Print Love. It's a, it's a kind of a magazine thing he does sometimes, and he had an edition that covered forth. In that edition of that redevelop Print Love magazine, he actually goes through how what you would have to do to implement your own forth in Ruby. And if someone wants to explore cognitive languages by implementing their own, that's a really good place to start. He's super good at writing, so it's really easy to follow. If you wanted to get started, that's something I would really recommend. And also, uh, if it was easier to get started and uh, to actually get a system up and running, I would recommend Joy, but it's kind of fiddly, I guess. You have to really want to make it work if you want to check out Joy, because the author of the language, unfortunately, passed away not too long ago. So uh, there's no one really working on that language anymore. But there are the binaries and stuff still exist on the Internet. So uh, I guess I can paste a link to the language homepage of Joy in the show notes if someone wants to check that out. Because that language is it's really fun. And also there's this language called Factor that you mentioned uh, earlier as well. So uh, maybe the most industry ready category language at the time. And that's also a good place to start if you wanted to experiment more with a uh, proper application, I guess, but starting with like the whole uh redevelop print love magazine it's it's really good and uh, if you just want like a high level overview, that's where I would uh, start I think and also like a thinking fourth book it's it's really excellent uh, you don't even have to really be into the whole fourth and cognitive languages thing. it's super useful for everyone I think. It's a kind of book that every programmer would get something out of, even if they're not going to uh, write and go get the languages languages anytime soon. Just the whole philosophy and the way that uh, these forced programmers of old <laughs> programming, everyone can get something out of that. So.
0: Sounds good. We'll get all those links to resources to find out more so people yeah. can play with it, see how it changes their thinking, as you've mm-hmm. said, as Focus has said, and a number of other people have said. Again, back, you, you mentioned your code mesh presentation coming up. Do you have any other presentations, any other projects you want to point people to, past or present? Anything you think people should check out, places they can find you upcoming?
1: There's a conference cool, uh, talk, and I also gave a talk at a conference in Oslo called FlatMap in uh, May. There's a video available. You can put that in the show notes, I guess. It's on the same topic. It's also like kind of uh, exploring competitive languages with creative programming in mind. It's the same kind of talk that I'm doing for Codemesh, but the one I'm doing for Codemesh is like the 2.0, so it's going to be better. <laughs> and also, there's, uh you mentioned uh, earlier, that I've written my own cognitive language called It, and that's available on my GitHub if you want to try it out. It's implemented in JavaScript, so you can run it in the browser. So it's easier to get started with, I guess. Also, I get a presentation at Farm, the workshop for functional art, music, modeling, and design That's uh, that takes place in the connection to ICFP. It was back in uh, September. There's uh, probably a video coming out from that uh, as well, where I present the language I wrote. So uh, we can probably add that to the show notes as well.
0: And yeah, we'll get all those added to the show notes. And then the other thing is, where can people find you online, follow along with you? What are the best places to keep updated as you, if you share your learnings, you share your tweets, small little snippets of just thoughts? where can people follow
1: along with you and keep updated with what's going on in your world? And yeah, the best place is probably uh, on uh, Twitter where I'm, uh, at Mullerse M O L L E R S E. Kind of like uh, my last name minus the last letter, I guess. <laughs> That's also my nickname on GitHub and everywhere else. So uh, mostly like if you want to reach me, Twitter is probably the best place. Um, I don't have a blog. Maybe I should have, but, uh, I don't, uh, Twitter is probably the best, uh, best place, and also GitHub, where I uh, work on my program, and, and I also publish the uh, most of my make on GitHub.
0: And we'll get those links added to the show notes. Yeah. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher for the logo. And once again, Stian, thank you for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you and very informative on concatenative languages and stack based languages and the like, and some of those ways it puts that change of thinking in and around your head about these topics. So thanks for taking the time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you, and I appreciate all the knowledge you've shared about these languages I haven't ventured too much into.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was my pleasure. Thank
0: you for having me. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.